worthwhile and uh, that we need for our economy. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 good news. You know, yesterday on the show we spoke about the national health insurance and you know how to really make it work. And everyone was talking about no, this what needs to happen is we need to increase the number of um, doctors and specialists in the country, and we we have in fact been able to do that over the past fifteen yes, years. Yes, that 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 is very true. We have seen big increases in the uh, public sector uh, number of public sector practitioners, and that's that's that might be surprising to a lot of people because you hear of so many people leaving or so many doctors leaving the public uh, sector and going into the private sector, or even leaving the country. So, Mm. again, there's a lot in this report which tries to dispel some of the conventional wisdom out there about South Africa, and that's why we did it, because we are concerned about uh, the the, the truth, and we want people to understand that, that, you know, having anecdotal... uh, you know, ideas about the country is one thing, but having the card facts is another thing, and, mm. and we need to have uh, we need to have that as well. Yeah. Um, so let's let's look at some of those hard facts. In the year two thousand, we had seven thousand five hundred general practitioners. Last year, thirteen thousand. Not bad. Uh, three thousand specialists in the year three thousand four thousand nine hundred um in 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 2015 it's a bit slow growth but there's there's growth yes there is growth and yeah. it's much faster than the over, uh, population growth so um as a you know you'll see that the proportion of uh, uh specialists as uh, the, the the share of specialists as a as a uh, share of the country's population has increased so um we are producing the the medical uh, practitioners at a fair enough rate and mm. i and i do think that um the, the national health, I'm not an expert on the national health uh, uh, plan, but I, I do think that it is possible given that we've seen these increases. Yeah, just I need to, I know I need to let you go because you need to rush off, but crime, everyone's concerned about that. How are we looking there? So we've seen um, big declines in the murder rates, and you might say, well, that's just one indicator of the crime situation. And it's true, it's just one indicator, but um, it's it's quite a good indicator because... Um, of course, uh, you know, murder is, is, a, is a statistic that, um, that tends to be reported by the, by the police. It tends to be um, acted upon. It's something so horrific. And so if we look at these murder figures, we can uh, get a sense, I think, of the overall crime situation because they're much more difficult to, uh, to manipulate. Mm. And so we can trust these figures a lot more than for the other figures. That's why we chose them because we wanted people to see that, uh, that real progress has been made and it's, in, and it's in the most important area, which is, of course, uh, uh, safety of the person. We need to look at how safe people are and whether they're safe in their homes, and we look at murder. Mm. Yeah, so 68 murders per 100,000 people in the year 1995 up to 1996 and 34 yes. uh, per 100,000 in the year 2015 to 2016. It's a very optimistic outlook on things. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Pleasure. Um, yeah, so what's your website again? It's www.irr.org.za. Okay, irr.org.za. Go and download this, this report, have a look through it, and, and then you'll see that the country's not going to the dogs. We've gotten... Uh, some of the really important things right. 
slowly but surely. Don't leave for Australia just yet. You're still on the talk shop on SAFM. Your topic could make it onto the talk shop. Just email talk at safm.co.za or tweet at SAFM Radio. So a new feature here on the talk shop. What about... Am I on air now? What happened? All right, there we go. A new feature on SAFM, on the talk shop, um, called What About Africa? And on this feature, we reflect on the state of our continent. We have to do that because otherwise you have uh, South Africans that go to other parts of the world, other parts of the continent rather, and say, oh, it's good to be in Africa. <laughs> Didn't realize they were here all along. So let's let's understand what's happening on the continent. Um, I'm joined on the line now by Seisman Mutlawun, who's a political science lecturer at the Northwest University. Seisman, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Naledi. How are you? It's Thank a- you for having me. I'm well. It's good to have you with us. Are you well? I'm fine. Thank you. Superb. Joined on the line also by Lieutenant General Mbuisa Lomkwebi, who is the UN Monesco Force Commander in the DRC. So the Monesco is the UN organization um, or stabiliza- stabilization mission in the DRC. There are a peacekeeping force established by the Security Council to monitor the peace process in the DRC. The Lieutenant General joins us on the line. Lieutenant, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thanks, uh, Sister Lady. Uh, pleasure is mine. Yeah. And I wish you all the best. Ah, I wish you all the best. Okay, so we're talking about military coups on the continent and how they threaten democracy and governance. Um, during the Cold War, coups were an attractive means of taking control of the state apparatus and, and gaining power in the developing world. But is this still necessary considering the avenues that came with the liberation of, of the continent? There's a, a lot of views that have come out, especially over the past two years, pieces that have been written about um, the word being used in some cases, in fact, was fashion, that coups um, are out of fashion on the continent. Says one, you agree with that? Yeah. This is uh, a general impression currently, mm. because what you, when we look into the coup d'état data sets, we would realize that really the frequency of your coup d'états is is diminishing slowly, mm. and the impetus of democratization in Africa is building up. So that could uh, justify that uh, hypothesis. Yeah. Lieutenant General, maybe talk to me about your work in the DRC, um, uh, conflict resolution, peacekeeping, and how that all really contributes to the discussion that we are trying to have. I think one of the things that will always come up in this discussion is that you won't have coup d'etats if they are um, uh, solid uh, institutional structures in a country. Well, uh, things being equal, if the democratic uh, structures, systems, and processes are mature in a country. It's not common to find military coup d'etats, but if these structures are weak and the civil society also is not at least uh, in place to be able to rise up and challenge some of the issues, then, of course, you'll have the challenge of coup d'etats. Mm. That would be the position. Mm. You know... I'm wondering about the link between a young population on the continent and this reduction of coups on the continent. Is is there a link between the two, Seisman? And I'll ask this one to you, Lieutenant, as well, after Seisman has responded. I, I think the younger generation is more 
savvy and I think they have been uh, or rather they have embraced a Western uh, philosophy of of government of a political system whereby they would are not so much malleable to supporting a coup but rather they would uh, pursue a more constitutional methods of gaining power or having control of state uh, institutions so uh, you'd realize that coup details are mainly spearheaded by former uh, rebel groups or former army personnel who've now fallen out of favor with the powers that be. So mm. I would, yes, uh, agree to that statement. Yeah, there's there's the example in, in Senegal of a group that was called the Y in Amare. And that means fed up. It was a group of Senegalese rappers, <laughs> <laughs> rappers and journalists who mobilized, I think it was in 2011, uh, to protest ineffective government. In, uh, yeah, so, so very effective in that way. You want to come in there, Lieutenant? Well, uh, the younger generation, uh, I, I tend to agree with the professor, the younger generation and the present uh, uh, time we find ourselves in the 21st century, the issue of uh, changing government using military means, it's not on. Uh, I think uh, not only because the younger generation, uh, at least, uh, is taking that route, but the acceptance of any country or of any government in terms of the structures of uh, in, in the African continent, if one may use that example, to be part of SADC, or part of uh, East African community, there are systems and structures within the AU mm. which tend to discourage the use of uh, coup d'etats not being acceptable. And of course, with the exposure of the younger generation in terms of development, in terms of education, that that direction is no longer a easy direction to go, even those who find themselves in military uniform. Mm. That would be uh, the position from the side. Yeah, and that's an interesting one. And maybe we should talk about a few examples where uh, bodies like the AU or regional bodies like ECHO was, were, were really uh, quite impactful in being able to to really deal with, with, with a coup in a specific country. And we, we have that example because the general view um, of a lot of people is that these regional bodies are impotent. Lieutenant? Well, uh, taking the one back home and uh, using the the challenge of our neighbor being Lesotho, understanding uh, the Lesotho that has been, at least uh, in the past, had quite a number of experience of these military coup d'etats. But with the advent of the 90s and uh, then the military coup d'etats no longer the accepted norm of changing government, uh, the SANAC has at least played a very big role in Lesotho to try and discourage the role of the military. Although now and again, of course, you would see that the sometimes politicians do try to bring the military into the scheme of things. Mm. But SADAC have tried at least to maintain that, that the military should stay out. And the, even as we speak, there's still at least a process to try and take Lesotho out of that. Uh, through the SADAC structures. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I want to just take calls on this one, right? We're talking about uh, coups on the continent um, and, and obviously threatening democracy and governance. But how is it that we have managed to see a decline in coups on the continent? What is it that, that has really worked? So we've talked about um, a younger population that expects service delivery from leadership um, and, and, and does not support a more li- militarized form of leadership. We've, we've talked about um, the, the impact of bodies like the AU on the continent. Uh, but what about the, the international community and how much pressure is coming from there? There's a view that is held uh, quite, quite often that, um, you know, that, that, that foreign interests do to some, to some extent support or abet uh, many of the coups that do take place on the continent. Give me a call, 0891-104-207. Our best conversations are the ones we have with you. Call us on 0891-104-207. Tweet at SAFM Radio or SMS 34701. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. All right, those details again, 0891-104-207 to give me a call or send SMSs to 34701 in conversation with Lieutenant General Mbuiselo Mkwebi, who is the UN Monusco Force Commander in the DRC, and Seisman Mutlawung, political science lecturer at the Northwest University. We're talking uh, military coups. Is it still necessary uh, considering that avenues that, um, that came with the liberation of the continent I'll take your calls. Again, the number is 891 I made that point before we went to the, into the news about um, the views that are held, especially on the continent, on influences that come from the international community, that um, it, it, in some cases it is seen that there's almost a bipolar um, uh, you know, approach to how the international community interferes with leadership and governance issues on the continent. Uh, do you want to do you want to come in there and and, and say something and just talk a little bit about um, the the impact of the international community on coups in the on the continent? Uh, yeah, what mainly one would observe, I think, is the role of France, mainly in the West Africa African countries. Uh, but I wouldn't say these uh, in, uh, foreign countries play a significant role. But what they do is provide maybe military advice and technical support. I think they leave matters mainly in the hands of regional structures like ECOWAS and the AU, who recently have come, you know, fought to say they will not recognize anyone, any country that usurps power unconstitutionally. So I think recently uh, those who would... Uh, rather to try to attempt to assert power through coup d'etats would obviously know that they will no longer be accepted in the nation's roundtables mm. like it was the case previously. Mm. So I think that explains as well as to the reduction of uh, military coups yeah. in our day. Yeah, Lieutenant General? Yes, uh, the acceptance of a country and a government in terms of the international structures is very critical for economic uh, reasons for any country. Therefore, the issue of independence and sovereignty is uh, in relative here. Using the Burundian situation as you speak, in terms of democracy and the two-term uh, 
uh, of uh, presidency with the president Kurunziza, I have de- decided with his government not to observe the constitution with regards to that. Mm. Now, because of the international community, they are under pressure because they are more of a donor country. And again, the issue of sanctions, being sanctioned by some of the uh, bigger countries in terms of economy, and for government to have programs to move forward to be able to deliver as far as the younger generation in terms of service delivery and the community at large, that becomes also a factor to be at least uh, reckoned with mm. for anybody who wants to take a different route and therefore it tends to bring people within line to be mindful, although they might think of doing ABCD, but they are mindful of the other factors in terms of uh, international relations. Mm. Yeah, let, let's take calls. The number is 891 Eddie is in Ordendal's risk. Eddie, good evening. Yes, how are you, man? I'm well, Dr. Twabala. Thanks for hey, calling. Yes, you are talking war. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> you want to understand, Abu Dedi? Yeah, no, for sure. No, mm. this, this, I don't think we need this, you know. Um, you know, this, uh, you remember that song, um, Let There Be Peace in Africa. Mm. And, you know, it, it's so painful because once there's a, a you'll find that the people who are suffering are just ordinary people. Look, look at what's happening now in uh, Mozambique. You know, Zimbabwe is getting so flooded with people from, from, uh, from Mozambique. I don't know what is it. Um, if people can't disagree, why can't they sit down as Africans and resolve their problems rather than, you know, taking power by force? Mm. And, and, you know, I can, I can hear the beat. It's like it's coming our way. In our south, in, in most of the countries in Sadek. And I'm so worried. Mm. I'm so worried. I'm so worried. Yeah. Really. And I just want to ask your guest uh, really, what is it that can be done? Because you have structures as your AU and other structures that can be, you know, your Sadek. And it's like we can't resolve our own problems. And, I, and I'm not referring only in, in the Sadek region. I'm also referring the whole continent. What is it that we can do that we can do things better? Mm. Look at what's happening in Syria. Look at what's happening in Egypt. It's so painful. Ordinary people are suffering. That's mm. for people who want to be in power and abuse power. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Eddie. You know, when you talk about what what the impact is on the population on the ground, it does make you wonder what that actually looks like. As South Africans especially... We read about um, a coup in Burkina Faso and we, we can only imagine what that means for the person on the ground. But as a matter of fact, we don't know. So maybe Seisman and, and um, uh, Lieutenant, I'll, I'll bring you in as well. Seisman, what does that mean? And this is the concern. I think as South Africans, we want that picture to be painted. When we have um, uh, refugees living in South Africa, we struggle to understand what, where they come from and what kind of environment it is that they come from. Oh, I, I think what, one thing is because the political culture in South Africa is quite different to that of African countries where they've come from one party state or uh, military governance, uh, when there are coup d'etats and there are in the civil conflicts, uh, you'd have you can imagine yourself say you stay in Johannesburg and there's a war there, mm. buildings, shoppings, uh, 
uh, malls, schools are dysfunctional. It's purely unsafe to reside there. The option is to move from Joburg, perhaps to Pretoria or a neighboring province. So that's, I think, one could imagine in this country. So it's quite inhabitable. Uh, these are contesting parties who fight over natural resources, mm. who fight over power, like the caller said, because power allows one to determine as to how these resources will be distributed. Uh, so probably one would call it greed. Mm. <laughs> so it, it's a very complex uh, issue to really give a solution just in a while. Lieutenant General, can, can I just get a picture from you on what a, you know, my contemporary in the DRC is facing every day that, that we may not even be able to imagine? Yeah, that's a very uh, challenging aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're sitting now in the DRC, just talking about the Congolese themselves who are internally displaced, you're looking at the numbers. Being internally displaced, that means you cannot do your day-to-day activities as a family. Schooling goes out. You can't go and work uh, in your fields. Mm. That, that's problematic, and people are sleeping in the open. And then you start having then the UNHCR coming in, which is United Nations Human Rights Commission people, started to take care of the people in terms of uh, shelter, blankets, food, medicine. Now, when you go and visit this, then you look at kids and the mothers and daughters expecting uh, in that environment and under those conditions, then you realize what it means. Mm. And people who are probably more lucky and fortunate in their own countries, if they would then be exposed to this, they won't understand what it means to be an internal displaced person in your own yeah. country. Yeah. But going down to uh, the area of Pukavu, which is still in the east, uh, you would have about something 25,000 Buringians sitting in a refugee camp. Mm. Now, when you visit the camp, you look at this, then you look at the, again, kids, and then you wonder when and under what circumstances will they ever go back. And now this gap of their lives sitting in a refugee camp, what does it mean? Mm. How long and will it last? And then you just take your own family yeah. and then begin to at least uh, put yourself into their con- their condition and their place. Mm. Oh, As maybe. I'm speaking to you, we're dealing with the issue of uh, Southern Sudan, where quite a number of uh, Southern Sudanese have moved into uh, the area of uh, uh, Dungu, which is uh, in the northern part of the DRC. Mm. I'm talking about the figure of uh, 63,000 people. Now, these 63,000 people, you can then... Uh, fit, fit in the women, children, old, and whatever. Now, traveling, food, and all those to finally get themselves here. So, when you're moving around, then trying to provide assistance and support to these uh, UN agencies, and you see this, then you can't help but feel for the people. Mm. And then say, as a South African, how blessed we are to find ourselves in those kind of conditions mm. as South Africans. Yeah. Because we don't understand what it means. Yeah, Saisman, I heard you wanted to come in earlier. Yeah, yeah I think one of the other 
uh, aspects are in relation to the rule of law, because when you look recently in the Central African Republic, you've had, I think, claims that UN uh, peace forces were also sexually molesting women mm. in those areas. So it's like a woman could be raped and then would not have any, any recourse for justice. Well, there were claims that our own defense force was doing the same. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if the South African forces were party to that. Mm. Uh, but this was a concern in terms of if, if the people who should be enforcing justice and defending the defenseless uh, are the ones who take advantage of them. So it's, it's like a state of chaos, really, mm. because one sense of dignity is not uh, assured, really. Yeah, and you see, the, the, the fact is that the, all of this comes back to, to decent governance and leadership and functional institutions at the very top. Um, and, and quite often we're so quick to criticize whether it be the new or the old public protector. But the fact that we have that institution in place says a lot about where we are as a country. Um, when the rest of the continent, a lot of countries just don't have that, if you want to call it a luxury, that luxury. Um, now, Eddie asked a question that I think is such a difficult one to answer. What can be done by the AU? Um, and I say, what really can be done by the AU if the AU itself is majority funded by the United Nations? So even just the, the resources that the AU has to deal with governance on the continent surely should be coming from the continent itself. Um, Lieutenant General, you want to come in on that one? Uh, thanks, uh, Naledi. Well, the challenge first, it should be the citizens themselves and those who claim to be leaders uh, in terms of taking care and thinking of uh, people to make sure that they put up the right structure and the right systems. And when they then begin to talk politics, they don't talk politics of the stomach and of their own interest. From where I'm seated in terms of the DRC, fully knowing what has been happening in this country from the 60s since independence. And then at this stage, you find still, for the past 15 years, the United Nations has been sitting here. Mm. But when you begin to relate to the government structures and you see the absence of um, uh, government authorities in certain areas, then you ask yourself a question, but why is it so? Mm. And it would be difficult in my view, it can be done, AU or any other structures, but the the national themselves, they need to do something. Otherwise, you cannot sit and wait for somebody from outside to do things on your behalf. But unfortunately for the TRC, because of the also the riches they have, uh, for them to come into terms with themselves, with the interests of the outside world, then it becomes a mm. very mind-boggling for me. Yeah. I won't be able to say what can be done, but looking at it, you just find it difficult to understand why people cannot understand as leaders mm. and why there is no statesman who rise up above all this and begin at least to give direction.
Yeah, Sesman, I'm going to let United you... United Nations, yeah. Yeah, and just, just a moment, Lieutenant General. Um, I'll let Sesman respond on this one as well. But Vasco's on the line in Johannesburg. I'll take just maybe one more call after Vasco, 891 Vasco, good evening. You've been so patient on the line. Thanks for calling. Evening, how are you? I'm well, and yourself? Evening to our guest, Lieutenant, who's making a piece in the RC. Yes, I'm having a question which I would like to ask him. Yes, I'm from um, uh, uh, DRC uh, in the east where uh, all this uh, uh, problem is happening at the moment. Mm. I have a question which I would like to learn because since they've been in DRC for making tea, what is really in the achievement they've made so far? Because uh, right now, um, just uh, last month, there have been people being killed in Benny while they are there in the government in the area where forces are met in place. There were also people who have been killed, people who have been protesting in Kinshasa. And they are there in Kinshasa for making peace. What are they doing while people are still killed day and night? And today, the last question is, now next month, uh, President Kabila is is, is 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 supposed to leave the power, and he doesn't want. And what is the, what will be the mission of 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 of, of the Akim? Because it will be again people will be killed there because Kabila doesn't leave the power. Um, uh, so what will be the mission mm. will be doing in order to protect the people? Thank you very much. Yeah, Vasco. Thanks. Thanks for calling, Lieutenant. Uh, uh, to my colleague from uh, Congo, I think he understands the size of his country, mm. and also he should understand the kind of terrain we find ourselves as United Nations, and the area he's speaking to, I've been there myself, uh, and I understand what's happening. We are doing what we can as the United Nations, but alone, without the Congolese coming on board and making sure that at least they live in a better, uh, peaceful and uh, secure environment is going to be difficult. As, a, as a, a foreigner, when you find people killing each other, and, and they supposedly uh, probably know each other, then the problem is what, what, what is happening. Mm. For us, yes, we are providing protection to the uh, civilian community, in the areas where we are, we are dealing with the different uh, armed groupings. As if he speaks to the one which is in Beni, he would then realize that we've been there and we are there working with the government forces to deal with that situation. But more than that, again, you want the security forces of this country to be empowered, to be equipped to do what needs to be done. Mm. But you also, because it's not a military solution to this problem, you also need to correct the politics of the country so that at least people respect each other as citizens of Congo, not base themselves on the ethnicity and kill each other based on the ethnicity. The change of government is going to be a political direction. And I'm sure my brother is aware of the national dialogue which at least has been uh, trying to address the question he's raised here, mm. he's raising.
Yeah, let's. Yeah, Lieutenant General, I'm 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 running out of space here, and I, I'm going to have to let you go. But I think that we'll definitely be talking to you some more in the future as we continue with this feature. Uh, maybe at some point we need to have a real focus on what's happening in the DRC and have you back on the line. But thank you so much for giving us your time. Thanks, Naledi, and uh, and uh, goodbye to my friends, uh, those uh, who managed to come through. Mm. And again, my brother in uh, the professor. Thanks for very much. Yeah, yeah, Seisman, clo- closing shots uh, from you. You know, I made the point earlier about the, the the independence of the African Union. Surely has a lot to has, has a lot to contribute to how the African Union is able to deal with governance issues on the continent. Yeah. Yes, Naledi, before I respond, I need to correct I'm not professor as yet. <laughs> <laughs> but then, this issue of the independence is uh, very resonant to what we've seen in South Africa and uh, the likes, I think it's Kenya, who have uh, committed, to, uh, expressed their intention to withdraw from the ICC, mm. whereby they claim that this uh, structure is unfair in that African leaders are the ones who are being uh, prosecuted for human rights violations while your Western European leaders are are neglected. I think the moral question to it is, is uh, the AU and South Africa really implying that they condone leaders who would uh, commit violent uh, human human violations human rights violations uh, without doing anything I, i'm not aware of any structure within the au currently or any immediate effort for for the structure to really uh, prosecute those who are in in violation the phenomena we have currently i think which is quite parallel to a coup d'etat, is what we in academia would refer to a constitutional coup d'etat, where you find that these African leaders are removing certain structures, legal structures that stand in their way uh, of power. So we'll have some who would change presidential term limits. I think uh, the lieutenant has already spoken on Kabila, in Rwanda you have Kahame, who is thought to be already thinking about extending or changing his constitution to allow him to go for more than two terms. So the issue of the AU's independence, I think they are trying to say we want to be independent, we want to have African solutions to African problems, but I don't see those solutions coming anytime soon. So, like uh, the lieutenant has said, it is now incumbent on civil society, it is incumbent on citizens to be active, to call for the type of a government they want. Mm. In in Congo, like the uh, uh, lieutenant said, we have a problem of ethnicity, which is similar to South Africa, where Zulu, Kosa, Tswana, I think before 94, there was that anxiety that Mm. there might be a civil war. But South Africa managed to overcome that. The question is, how did South Africa manage to do it? 
uh, while other African countries are failing. Okay, well, th- listen, maybe we should um, have a separate dis- have a separate discussion at some at some point about what what African independence actually means when we talk about the independence of African organizations like the AU um, and and what the implications of <clears throat> <clears throat> pulling out of the ICC actually. Oh, I've got a frog in my throat. We'll continue after this. Thank you so much to Seisman Mutlohung, um, political science lecturer at the Northwest University.